Biram Meji, welcome to Don Le Coulis. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having us. It's wonderful. Wonderful to be here. <laughs> Very excited to uh, to have you both here for a couple of different reasons. So first, each of you has a distinct yet common set of experiences. I mean, you both have a track record of launching and leading organizations. You share a commitment to investing in young ventures in Francophone Africa. And secondly, chatting to two really sharp and accomplished people is a welcome departure from the one-to-one conversations I usually do. And I'm sure it will kick the insight factor up a notch. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get started. Sounds good. Already. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. So the first question is, if you had to describe yourself and your journey in a tweet or an Instagram post, what would you say? And Meji, um, I'll kick it off to you to go first. Okay. Well, I would say for me, it's about being part uh, of uh, Francophone Africa's post-independence journey uh, as it focuses on business. Um, so probably a bit longer than what you would put for a, a tweet, but uh, yeah, that, that's what I would describe. Good stuff. Biram, how about you? Uh, well, I, I think I would describe it more as saying um, defining the future of innovation in Africa, but we're not, um, yes, I will Obviously, this is why I'm not so active on Twitter either. <laughs> no, but this is good. So de- <laughs> defining the future uh, of Francophone Africa and helping to build uh, business and markets. Meji, I think I kind of missummarized your submission just a little bit. But let's dig into what you've shared as a foundation a little bit more. So I'll start with you, uh, Biram. As I understand it, you are, I guess, what we like to call a, a retourné, a, a retourné. So what motivated you to move back to Senegal? Wow. So obviously, Senegal is where I was born. It is actually not where I grew up. And then I did move to the United States for college after high school and had only had a chance to live in Senegal for two years. And after 26 years or maybe more, but we won't count, I was actually back in Senegal just on vacation. I will say that I had been thinking about moving for quite a while, or at least I had been talking about it. I will say I had been talking about it with no plans whatsoever. But being here on vacation that specific year, which was in 2019, there was no plan. It just hit me. It just felt like this is the right time to do it. And I kept on saying, I just feel like the universe is telling me that this is when you should do it. I was feeling a little bit lost, I will say, in in the U.S. in terms of just trying to define what kind of entrepreneur I wanted to be, where I wanted to go. I felt like everything had already been done, that the new ideas were good and maybe exciting, but nothing that felt really new or impactful. And coming to Senegal specifically, I think just having the environment that there was, there was already an initial buzz from those that had already moved back, like my sister, um, Maggie, and, and others who had just moved back and had been very helpful at connecting me to different people. Uh, there's an initial fear when you're moving back because you feel like you have to start over, but you have to start over and show that there was a reason why you left. So there's just a whole lot of pressure. But I think with having the environment being so ready in, in that kind of way was one thing. And the second thing was just realizing and feeling like there were so many opportunities that we could 
work on and that we had already worked on in in the U.S. or anywhere else that would make it very um, impactful. Everything you do has an impact here in Africa right now. At least that's the way I look at it. Brilliant. So it sounds like you were drawn by a need to sort of be entrepreneurial in a space where the work was impactful and there was still ground to cover in terms of of being innovative and solving problems. And you mentioned that others, including your sister, Maggie, had already come back to sort of take part in that journey. So Maggie, let me let me turn to you. One of the ways that you had already started creating impact was through Haskey Ventures. So can you share a little bit more about your professional journey and how that led to Haskey Ventures and, and why you decided to launch that with your sister and I think I think one other partner? That that's right. We do have one other other partner, Abdurrahman Job. So I'll give him a shout out here. <laughs> but yeah, I I moved back uh, in 2008, and prior to that, I had a career in consulting in the U.S. And that call to to come to come home hit me, like I think many many of us, and feeling that things were happening here and were possible, despite many people saying you cannot leave a consulting firm in the U.S. You haven't been in in uh, Senegal or worked in Africa, being based there for a long time, how are you going to build a network and so many questions, but it was just time. And uh, as many people know, when it's that time, you don't hear anything else. You you just come home. Um, and for me, it started all in, in consulting uh, and being able to build uh, slowly but surely a portfolio of clients, be able to build partnerships, work in broad sectors, where we started doing, you know, all sorts of types of consulting engagements to moving to being able to do more um, strategies, for example, for national governments or large organizations or very impactful work uh, that we could take on uh, to work to act uh, I'll say more than just advice, act in a sector, whether it's education or health. Uh, so that gave a lot of, uh, at least to me, when people then started telling me, should I move? I said, well, you should, even if you're scared about the networks So things that might not be here, you should and just help build them. It is possible. Africa is uh, truly that open a place where human connections actually happen very quickly. Uh, you can meet with somebody, um, discuss a work idea, and next thing you know, it feels like your your family, or you'll find somebody who you're connected through. And and it's very powerful to have that on on this continent. So I saw business models evolve. I saw many uh, other people come back and and try new things. Um, I saw partnerships evolve in a different way where it's about what can we each pitch in to build something together. And that was my my consulting career, but I felt like there was still something lagging and perhaps more so in some of the countries we were working in, in West Africa. And it was about more of the private sector engagement, more of being uh, more active in that innovation uh, field. And that's why we started uh, Haske Ventures. It's uh, We saw the potential, we saw... Uh, laws change. Uh, we, for example, in Senegal, changed some of the, the laws to allow uh, startups to engage, to do better, to have a better chance at success. We saw talent come back or at least ideas to train talent. Uh, so much, so much changed. Uh, but the private sector was, I, I felt at least, was not catching up fast enough. Uh, so we said, let's position ourselves where we can also help start the businesses of the future. We can help 
uh, entrepreneurs accelerate uh, their um, idea setting and, and launching these businesses. So uh, here we go. That's why we have Ask Ventures now. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Maggie. It's interesting that you mention timing. I mean, both of you did. And, and I think there's a way in which timing comes into play a lot when people think about the reasons or the impetus for coming back to the continent at a certain point in time. I think it plays a pretty significant role in startups as well. I mean, a lot of emphasis is placed on, you know, the founding teams and the market and, and things of this nature, but timing also so plays um, a pretty significant role. So I want to come back to uh, your choice to focus on venture building, but I'd like to bring Biram in to, to talk about the timing question. So you mentioned, Biram, that you felt like it was the right time to come back home, so to speak. But why did you decide to come home and also launch your company, Quelly, the mission of which is to support uh, small businesses? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, for me, the moving back wasn't necessarily something I had planned in that kind of way. But one thing I'll say is that I, I did have the opportunity to live in San Francisco in the early 2000s, where I started my first company, my first startup. After moving to San Francisco from Miami, where the startup world was not so active. And that same fear, I think, that we have sometimes of even starting a business in Africa was there when it, when we lived in, in, in Miami because the, 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 the environment is just not set up for it. But in San Francisco specifically, there was just some level of energy that was there. It's not one you can describe. It's not one that you can necessarily draw or, or put value on. But there was just this energy that we were building something for the future. We were all focused on mobile applications. It was at the time when we were now moving from the mobile phone that was just to be able to dial a number to smartphones. And it became just exciting to be able to sit there and collaborate with people and feel like you were part of something, even though you didn't know what that something was. That same feeling is the one I had when I was in Dakar in 2019. With a lot of the infrastructure around the ecosystem being put in place, the government putting together programs for funding startups, regardless of how people feel about if it was successful or not, if it worked or not, if it's the right strategy or not, what it did is that it let people know that it was okay to be an entrepreneur and that there were options out there that you needed to go get. And then understanding that there were incubator programs that were set in place, the, the, the energy was just there. But also looking at everything that everybody was talking about, the adoption of mobile phones in Africa and watching how it was adopted based on applications that were specific to the continent, specific to certain countries and the culture. For me as an entrepreneur and somebody who likes to introduce something new, it just triggered a lot of things to say, oh, wow, you know, it's, it's a green landscape. Now I can just dream about what I can build that will actually also have impact. And so that impact for me was mostly attached when looking at Quilly was mostly attached to the ability to see how to change the perception people had around made in Africa products, how to position those products 
into stores in the United States, in Europe, wherever else, because you just travel a lot and you don't find these products we consume in Africa anywhere else. And so that's what led to building this B2B marketplace that's solely focused on made in Africa products, but also provides all the support the local uh, producers need in order to have their products be ready for export and meeting all of the international standards. And when, when we work on it, what keeps us going, even though it's very, very hard, is just seeing every day the impact we get to have on people's lives, on, on the way they do things. So it's just an exciting time right now. Yeah, it's really interesting, um, Biram. I was, I don't recall what I was watching on YouTube, but an ad came on for a brand called Active Black, and it was a stunning ad. It was two absolutely beautiful people. Um, I'm assuming they were of African origin because there's at least one collection on the website that's dedicated to Nigeria. But, you know, a stunning couple kind of in, in the style of Jay-Z and Beyonce when they were in their kind of... Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> they had this <laughs> they had this outlaw phase. Uh, there was at least one video where they were kind of showcasing that. But the visuals were stunning. The clothing was stunning. I went to the website and looked at the brand and thought, wow, there's just something very evocative and luxe about how this brand is being positioned. And so when you talk about the perception of made in Africa brands, it makes me think about that, that uh, mm-hmm. there's a way in which you know, these products and goods and services can be positioned as, you know, accessible and desirable to everyone, everyone mm-hmm. everywhere who, you know, is, is seeking these types of products. It's also interesting that you mention, you know, being in Miami and then subsequently being in Dakar when neither of these cities were at the forefront from what you might call startup ecosystems. And Miami is popping now. I mean, I think people are, are uh, happily yes. making, <laughs> Finally. making a case. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. People still do people still do see it as a place you go to to go to the beach and you know go out all night but um but it is there. <laughs> no, definitely, but it's thanks to people like you who saw the potential and the opportunity to, you know, to build the future even when it was unclear what the future was that makes anchors for ecosystems like Miami and like Dakar possible. So I'd like to go back to you, Maggie, because you'd mentioned your mission through Haskey Ventures to, to sort of help build these companies in, in almost a similar, a complementary way to the way that Biram is doing for the companies she serves. So your approach is more about venture building versus venture capital funding or venture capital only. Can you talk a little bit more about that approach and why you decided to support companies that way? Sure, sure. Uh, and, and it comes from different angles. One is uh, through uh, the consulting work we had done. We supported, for example, one of the DFIs or the Development Finance Institutions to work with an organization in Senegal to set up a fund. So we did the market assessment for that. For another donor that had established a regional fund, also they asked us to help build their pipeline. We had also done a strategy for for one of the government institutions rather in Senegal that's very focused on uh, SMEs and entrepreneurship. And um, a couple of more examples like that, but just to say throughout these engagements, we found ourselves often 
seeing that the list of the the portfolio or the potential uh, targets for investment were very, very similar. And throughout the years, these lists didn't evolve much, which was surprising in such a dynamic uh, environment or ecosystem. You looked at the list project after project, and you would start with what you already had, and there was not much to add. And those who were on there, not enough were actually, we're saying they've raised this amount and they're ready to move on to their next phase of, uh, of growth. So that was one frustration that we had. The other is often as a consultant, if you're doing a sector study or a value chain assessment and you identify investment opportunities, then you want to hand those to the private sector to run with it uh, because it's saying here are the business opportunities. You know, we've, we've done some of the work of assessing it. Uh, and we think there's an opportunity here and saying, yes, we're interested uh, from the private sector, but not always seeing that evolve and hearing often sometimes from the government. Uh, See, we told you the private sector is not engaging sufficiently or they're not ready. Uh, and some of those those challenges. So seeing that gap and wanting to say, why is there not more that's being added to the portfolio and why is private sector hesitating? When we initially started with, we didn't, we weren't sure we were going to land on a venture builder. So we spoke to a lot of uh, investors who look at the region and many said, I have money, but I can't find uh, enough investment ready startups that I could look into. And that's also very telling where the, the, the issue or the challenge was not always about money and oftentimes not about money, but uh, investment readiness, uh, particularly in some of the Francophone countries. In speaking to some of the potential actors who could take this on in the private sector, they would tell you um, the ecosystem is tough in that if I want to build a company that's focused on X, I have to also think about everything that surrounds that X. I, I need to understand the regulatory environment. I need to probably, um, you know, go and speak to the right actors as to how do I get my product from point A and point B. And I have to build that road, you know, Uh, so much that one has to think about in starting a venture that's uh, well, well beyond just what that venture is is meant to focus on. So the the fear, the cost, the the time, et cetera, that it takes. So that's what, what made us decide to do venture building versus just investing. Uh, and I always have the, uh, a funny story where when I first, uh, m- well, not a few years after I moved, where I would be working on getting the generator started or, fi- or figuring out what needed to be fixed at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. writing a concept note that needs to go to a decision maker <laughs> and wondering, imagine if I didn't have to <laughs> engage in so many of these things and able to get to just focus on what matters to get a venture to the next stage. So I think those, those are some of the reasons that we, we listen to the market and we also learn from the different projects we had completed. It's a really, really useful um, and thoughtful point you make about the connection between investment-ready startups and all of the systems-related factors that go into making startups investment-ready. And I think the reason why it's really important to point this out is because I've been hearing anecdotally for years about this lack of investment-ready startups. And you can kind of almost predict what happens if you ask an investor what the biggest challenge is. At least historically, you'll hear lack of investor-ready startups. If you ask a founder what the most important challenge is, inevitably you hear lack of capital. 
So you might argue either both of those are true, neither is true, one is true and the other isn't, or there's something else going on. But I think what's really keen about this insight is that if you, uh, and I kind of learned this in doing research on uh, VC in Africa through a report I co-authored called Chasing Outliers. And what we heard is that a lot of startups based uh, on the continent kind of have to build the enabling infrastructure, build the supply chains that will allow them to solve the problem they intended to solve. So they actually have to build the ecosystem. If that's part of your job, so in your case, imagine if you're having to kind of figure out power in addition to the discrete task of writing a concept note, that makes your journey to investment readiness a lot longer and a lot harder. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. But let's let's talk a little bit because we've, we've spoken a little bit about the, the benefits or the need for venture building in the case of Quelli, but also in the case of Haskey. But maybe we can talk a little bit about what's challenging about it. So in your case, Biram, the idea is to figure out how to change the perception of Africa-made products to the world. And your company actually helps smaller businesses do that. What are the main challenges that you've um, encountered to that to that approach? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> there's a lot, even, even if we have to define them as the main <laughs> ones. Um, we can just sit and debate on what main means, but I, I think in general, it's exactly what Maggie was talking about, and and we talk about it a lot as well. But um, when it comes to the specific area of made in Africa products, the biggest challenge for them is access to market, which is the reason, the core reason why we felt like there was a need to build a platform to help with that. Meaning being able to create your products locally based on local ingredients and then being able to sell those products or just traditional local know-how and then being able to sell those products to international buyers at the B2B level, which is where we found sort of the biggest need. But there the problem is most of your local producers or local suppliers don't necessarily speak the same business language because they're really still operating at the sort of artisan level. They don't necessarily have all the skills in terms of being salespeople and marketing people. I was just talking about it today. I just believe that we're asking way too much from the entrepreneurs we have here in Africa. When we have training programs, any kind of program, it's all focused on the entrepreneur. And I'm like, are we really expecting this entrepreneur to be an expert in everything, meaning fundraising, accounting, marketing, the product, production, HR, it just doesn't make sense. But the pieces that are missing are all those services, having access to all those services in some sort of way. And so for us, providing this service around distribution and marketing became a really important part where we say we will handle the distribution for you and we will open up the doors. We will speak that language with the potential customers. But then there's the other side of it, which is that the product that we're selling to these customers needs to meet the same standards that these customers have. And there as well, there's some expertise that's needed. If you're looking to sell your products in the U.S., you need to follow the FDA standards. But if you don't know about it, if you've never been to the U.S., you don't even speak English because you're in Francophone Africa and you've always spoken French, it's, it, it, it is a challenge. It is a really big problem for you to um, to close that gap. 
So that's another service that we as a startup need to be able to offer in order to meet our end goal, which is distribution. And then I take it to the last level. Actually, there's another level, but that one we've decided not to get involved in, which is the production level and production capacity. But the other level is now you have your, you created the product, but now you need the right packaging. You need to be able to source this packaging, but we don't produce this packaging in Africa. So now you have to go and find suppliers around the world that can provide it to you at prices that make sense, at volumes that make sense for you and the market you target. So there's just a lot of inconsistencies, incoherence between where we are and what the where the market is and what the market is asking for. So we're trying to be that buffer that can close that gap. But as you can imagine, that means as well that we're wearing several hats and we're having to go all the way from the design, the the, the strategy to the distribution and the marketing to even doing some fulfillment, meaning doing all the packaging, filling, labeling, et cetera. So we're all over the place just to close that gap, but because we can afford to do it as the business that we are. But as for the local supplier who may be not even in the main city, but be remote, it's too much asking them to do it all by themselves. And there's no training that's going to get them there. It requires resources, expertise, and just access. No, definitely. And I think to be fair, Companies like yours that are building these infrastructure, supply chain, distribution, packaging, bridges, um, doing all of that work is actually big business from a, a VC perspective. And I, and I know the goal isn't just to engage in unicorn building and hunting, but these are you know very robust and legitimate business opportunities. Yeah, if I may... The distribution yes. is big business if you get it right, but there's no money in doing branding, at least at the local level, because you even need the person you're doing the branding for to understand and appreciate the level of work and expertise it needs to be able to meet those standards. So I'm not even sure. And, and that's where we see some of the challenges is that some of the outside investors that are not, that don't know the lay of the land that well in Africa they look at it as, well, we're investing into, we like the distribution side, especially if it's digital, et cetera. But when it comes to this whole incubation, brand incubation, brand creation strategy, for us, that's impact work. That's not what investors put their money in, at least not VCs. You so know, that's that... a challenge for us. <laughs> no, it's a big, it's a, a big challenge. And I could go on a, a rant just by myself on this in a different, in a different context. There are ways mm -hmm. in which there are jobs that have to be done. And I hate to generalize uh, African markets, but there are jobs that have to be done that set up the venture scale opportunities that people don't want to pay for. And I think the challenge is that these activities really are to, you know, a certain degree, they're non-negotiable. I mean, they have mm -hmm. to be done. But the question is, from an investor standpoint, do you have a deep enough understanding of what the, the pipeline is, what foundational investments have to be made that will enable you to kind of cherry pick is kind of a, a, a harsh word to use, but yeah. to cherry pick the types of investments that you want to, uh, you want to engage in. So from that perspective, Maggie, I'd like to get your, your take on this. So what in engaging with the companies that you support with Haskey Ventures are the most significant challenges in taking a venture building approach? And what are your thoughts about some of these, let's call them less, less profitable or less venture appropriate 
investments that may need to be made to unlock the venture appropriate or venture scale investments? Yeah, and maybe just on the on the prior point uh, uh, first, just to react to some of it. I, I think we can all agree that th- there's no there's no skipping the steps, basically. So some of these this infrastructure or these elements, they just have to be done. Otherwise, there's there's nothing to exchange, nothing to share, or <laughs> there's no escaping that. And to me, sometimes is how do we make sure we're not stuck in trying to do certain things with uh, sometimes the uh, funding model that's uh, not appropriate or that's not blended enough. We talk a lot these days about blended finance, but how can you bring different pots of money together to make this happen? You know, as we were doing this quickly started, uh, I'm always saying our banks are not uh, leaning in, taking in enough risk, but we still had to come back to the banks and say, okay, there's some of this infrastructure that needs to be built. You know, they might be VCs that could be interested, but they're uh, not as many. So how do we bring all of you around the table to discuss what's realistic? We went to the regional stock exchange. Uh, we see that there's a lot of work happening around trying to make tickets much, uh, much smaller or combined where the, for example, for the West African one, they said three companies to, could come together and mobilize on the regional stock exchange uh, for the, the capital market side of things. So that to, to unlock more capital to be able to build that some of these, these infrastructure elements. So I think sometimes we, we just will have to take a step back uh, while we really want to, to continue and work with the, the VCs. How do we also bring in other money? So putting all these different parts of money together to address the different needs uh, to build the ecosystem. I think that's something maybe we need to do a lot more of. And I think this is where uh, Africa has had some fantastic innovations where we've had to bring unusual types of actors around the table to create new uh, financing mechanisms. So this, uh, you know, matches exactly one of the issues where we or challenges we see about matching different financing or different parts of money with where the the, the current uh, venture is, uh, where where is it is, and and what is the, the the what's needed at that time. What we've seen, for example, is a lot of uh, startups that sat in an somewhere developed a wonderful wonderful solution. But we're not able to, for various reasons, spend enough time actually better understanding the problem so that that's the, the, you understand the problem, you build the right solution versus saying, I have a solution. Now let me go and look for a problem or let me try and redefine a problem so that it fits my solution. And that's very, very hard to, to do. So that's one. How do we spend enough time on, on that? And we've seen that some identifying the problems and being able to spend the time to do it requires uh, some profiles and talent that's not easily available around the world, let alone in some parts of, of Africa. So if you want a design thinker, uh, not so easy to identify those, those profiles. Uh, and I can, the list goes on. You know, We're doing great now with data scientists more and more through some initiatives that have happened. But here's another skill that's very highly in demand across the world uh, and that we also need. So that's another challenge, being able to match some of these profiles to be able to think through a a problem before building the, the solution. Sometimes it's also about 
building the right partnerships uh, between uh, between companies. It's uh, as you all know, the, these regions are just so full of opportunity. I mean, you wake up every day and you're you're trying to make sure you don't start doing three things <laughs> to focus a little bit. <laughs> so everyone is kind of going in all sorts of directions. And sometimes it's like, oh, if we had just sat down for six months earlier, we could have really thought in synergy and, and build things. I know one conversation, for example, I keep having with uh, Biram when she came from the U.S. She said, uh, you guys don't do enough um, M&A. So I am company X. I see something I need in company Y. Why don't we merge? We don't have enough of that. Or uh, franchise models, they're starting, but there's, there's probably a way to accelerate them. It's also for us to think outside of what's the trend and really think through what some of these solutions that can be built because we understand some of these issues that are at the more macro level. Right. So you raised some really interesting points about gaps and, and, and challenges. I mean, there was a good amount of nuance in what you suggested, but if I were to try to drop the insight into buckets, there's, um, there's an approach bucket, which is about um, having the experience to work from a problem to solution as opposed to building a solution and, and looking for or, or trying to find a problem. And there's a bit about talent, and these things are obviously related. There is a quote-unquote war for talent in a lot of key areas around the globe, but also uh, also on the continent. But I want to touch on your point about the kind of wealth of opportunity across the regions and the challenges that you are the challenge that you'd have in focusing. I mean, as someone who is outside of the continent, a member of the diaspora living in the diaspora, there's a way in which it can become easy to conflate, you know, multiple countries and, and Francophone Africa and describe them as Francophone Africa, but they are distinct countries. Yes, there is a common uh, economic market, UMOA. But my question basically is the wealth of opportunity that you described, are there hotspots for that opportunity or are they kind of well distributed across the region? And how would you characterize them? That's for you, Maggie, but Biram, you're welcome to come in because I'm sure you have thoughts on this based on running your business. <laughs> I might get in trouble for answering this one, but I will <laughs> I will cop to my biases. <laughs> um, I, I do think Senegal is a, a fantastic uh, environment for entrepreneurship right now. The, the, the energy, the different conversations that are happening, the actors coming in, the way it's very connected right now to also the global entrepreneurial ecosystem, I think is... Uh, uh, it's just a wonderful energy. It, it feels like uh, this is a, a good time. If you take a country like uh, Côte d'Ivoire, the maturity of the private sector, the size of the population and what has been uh, tested uh, in Côte d'Ivoire also makes it, for example, if you're a startup in Senegal, you always look at Côte d'Ivoire and vice versa. I, I was in Burkina, Burkina Faso not so long ago, and I was fascinated by the uh, made in Burkina Faso products. This was new to me. <laughs> Biramo, remember, I came with a whole bunch of samples of all sorts of things. And I said, you need to go to Burkina. They, you know, the, they're missing the packaging, but the products are, are just fantastic. 
And I could go on and on for each of the, the, the countries in the region and what they bring to, to the table. I think we're just getting to that stage where it's not about every country in, in WAMU uh, or UMOA trying to do the same. We're just getting to that stage to say, okay, maybe Senegal, our population size is lower, is really is a very good lab to think about these uh, these things and innovate. And and uh, you know, our our universities are quite good. We have a, a very good research systems as well. And you have to think about then uh, expanding that product uh, or whatever comes out of that uh, that innovation. Uh, how do you expand it to other parts of um, of Francophone Africa or West Africa? But on the other hand, what I was mentioning earlier around uh, really understanding the problem, once you dig in, you realize uh, Burkina is not Mali, is not uh, Niger, is in, uh, et cetera, every single country, and even within the countries. They're, they're quite unique. The challenges that each country is facing is very, very different. Nonetheless, having a common currency, uh, common language, common business law, etc., puts you in a very good starting place. The differences are there, no doubt. Um, it's about understanding them and what are these challenges, but a very good starting point and also understanding that we can build regional value chains, regional ecosystems, and we, we, each country has its, its um, asset to put forward. Yeah, I really like the idea of thinking about regional value chains and leveraging commonalities while pointing out where certain countries might have a competitive advantage might might not be the right. I mean, it's the right economic term, so I guess I'll use it. Uh, you might have countries that have specific competitive advantages. So thinking about uh, Senegal as a lab for business expansion is really interesting because the corollary, if you like, in East Africa might be Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda as a country is not nearly large enough to kind of birth and nurture a high growth company on its own. But given the investments that have been made, it's a superb country to kind of build something and test something and see where uh, where else it can be expanded. So Biram, based on your uh, experience running Quelly, what is your perspective on the range of opportunities within the Francophone region? And what are some of the distinctions you might see by countries or maybe some of the regional opportunities? I, I think the, I think Maggie has said um, most of it there. Uh, I, I would just agree with her on a, on, a, on a number of things. I would agree with her, I would say, on, on a number of things. You know, for me, what I see is that the differences are primarily at the cultural level. And in terms of when I say the cultural level, people tend to talk about Africa, let alone West Africa, let alone Francophone Africa, as everybody is the same, everybody <laughs> speaks the same language because we all speak French. But the truth of the matter is that we speak French with different accents. Right. <laughs> and so we can tell when we're different and we look at, you know, sometimes we have different approaches to things. There are a number of things people say, oh yeah, that works in, in Senegal, but that would never work in Cote d'Ivoire, for example. But the truth of the matter is that if you look at a market just like the United States, which is a single country, but then the states are very different and the coasts are very different. Companies will choose where they will launch their products or their services first, depending on what the culture is. The culture in Miami is very different from the one in New York, which is very different from the one in San Francisco, which will be different from Texas, right? And so I think it's just that same 
difference, but where when you're thinking about building your company, you're really thinking about something that connects the market. That is your role as an entrepreneur. If you're building something for very specific group and that market is not big enough, you're either going to be there for years and years, but never grow, or you're just going to die as a company. And so I think the challenge for every entrepreneur is and has always been finding that commonality within a region with it's just it's I wouldn't say within the geographical region but just within a market the differences you'll see between francophone africa and anglophone africa is the fact that the second language is different but between senegal and gambia gambia is part of anglophone senegal is part of francophone but we both speak wolof the people are pretty much the same in a lot of different ways um and and so to me it's more question of looking at it as your market and where does it make most sense for you to introduce your product or your service within that market that you're targeting and then making sure that that market is large enough for you to build a business off of. Yes, I think that's it's that's spot on. I mean, you can argue that if it's not job one, it's it's job two of a founder to have a clear perspective on what market he, she, or they are serving and whether it's large enough to support the ambitions of the business or, or maybe the other way around, how large the opportunity is. And in speaking to other investors, you hear all the time that you know, practically speaking, to really have a large enough opportunity to capture, you really will have to look beyond, quote unquote, artificial borders, whether it's city borders, country borders, international borders. I mean, I even had an investor say that there are some commonalities between, let's say, some parts of rural, rural Alabama in the U.S. and some parts of rural settings in other parts of the world, including on the continent. So it's it's imperative that you have a clear enough sense of who you're serving and whether you can find more of those uh, people or institutions outside of prescribed borders. But something else that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is this idea of connection and Connective tissue, let's call it that. Connective tissue and infrastructure. So I want to go back to something that both of you mentioned in different ways around connective tissue. So Maggie, you had mentioned that there's a need to think differently or more creatively about the type of money that comes in to invest in these opportunities. So you mentioned blending capital. So I wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about what that might look like. Yeah, so... I always go back to the, the Women's Investment Club or uh, WIC Capital in, in Senegal. It's a, uh, how should I call it? It's an investment arm, but brings together women who have pooled their, some of their savings together and invest in women-owned and led startups. Uh, it started in Senegal and now has expanded into Cote d'Ivoire. And actually, WIC Benin also now exists. And this came from looking at the um, Susu network, some call them, or the tontines, as we say, when uh, women, or actually just, it can be beyond women, all put some money together at the end of the month, someone takes it. I think we're all familiar with those across Africa. And when we explained uh, that to, to, this is what we want to do, but we want to also, we want to put the money into the stock exchange. We want to then set up an investment arm that's, uh, you know, fits, I'll say, within the modern world. But we're thinking about mobilizing our resources by each and every one of us 
joining by putting a certain amount. And then every month you add a, a smaller amount and that will pool enough capital for us to start something meaningful. When we explained it like that, everybody understood. Today we have 99 members. We've all put in about $10,000. We have continued to invest, in, I think, about two, $300 a, a month. And now we're pulling additional resources. But here we go. This is something we're familiar with that uh, women from all walks of life in this part of the world understand and can relate to and want to be a part of. Uh, so it's thinking more about, uh, about these things. Where does the money sit and how do, I, uh, how do I leverage it? I think there's also something about the informal sector. We have such uh, dynamic informal sectors. And sometimes you sit with the actors and listen to their stories around how they managed capital. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to, to see some of and how they can explain to you even the business model in their own terms that it's just it's not on paper. That's the only difference. But it's a very, very strong and successful business model. Today, you'll see also how money moves between African traders. Um, there's something there, the way we move today. I think in Senegal, you go to some of our textiles markets or fabrics. None of us can uh, estimate the amount of money that moves in that place and to other parts of the world. So uh, people have figured a lot of things out in their own ways. But how do we leverage all of that and bring these different approaches that we understand and can relate to, to bring them into the, the modern world? So there are many examples out there that we could be exploring. Others are a reality and, and happening. I really appreciate the idea of this isn't the most elegant way to describe it, but leveraging the traditional. Um, in my day job, we're spending a lot of time trying to understand the intersection between digitalization and informality as it pertains to the day-to-day -day realities of small business owners and traders. You know, how are they using technology? Does it make it easier for them to to do business? What are the new you know, modes of, of distribution and connecting to customers and suppliers and such? And also to your point about WIC, the idea of, I don't know if it's necessarily modernizing uh, traditional modalities, um, Tontines, Isusu, Stockwells in South Africa, et cetera, but as uh, less maybe modernizing, but more using them as a foundation to kind of enhance the level of economic opportunity that is available. Because to your point, everyone knows what these models are. I mean, they use them. They might be in multiple at the same time. And so when you use that as a, as a point of reference for thinking about investing and building businesses, you know, it creates a very powerful anchor to direct funds in that direction. And so I want to talk a little bit about the future. But before we do that, Barab, I want to bring you in because Maji had, Maji had mentioned that you mentioned that there were some um, opportunities uh, unexplored around franchise models and M&A. So I'm curious uh, how you think that might play out or what those opportunities are. Yeah, I mean, I, it was interesting because I, I remember even years back, maybe around 2010, I don't know, when CityCat had started and others, when I had come to Senegal, Magic had put me in touch with a number of people who was just starting at the time, uh, incubator programs. So I got a chance to go and meet up with some of the initial entrepreneurs that were there. And well, one of the questions I would ask them was, what's your exit strategy? And none of them had one. 
Not one. Not one had mm. an exit strategy because the idea was um, you're not going to go public because you're building your business in Senegal. And which market are you going to go public on? Then the other option usually that you would see from startups primarily in the U.S. would be uh, will get acquired. But then the question would be who's going to acquire you knowing that you're the first one in this space, right. in this particular country, and there was no connection whatsoever with other countries. Obviously, then you can just say, well, I'll just become a unicorn. But that's a very, 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 very small percentage of startups that can get there. And the answer that they gave me in the end as we were debating this whole topic was, well, most of them are actually building these companies so that they could feed their families. They had some income. And then they were building something that they could leave for the next generation to manage. So even in the startup world, it was mirroring the way our grandfathers and fathers and, you know, the previous generations built their commerce business or whatever traditional businesses they were. They would bring the kids in very early to learn the business and keep it going. So that was the expectation. I think the ecosystem has changed. And when I talk about the ecosystem now is that it has widened. It is you're no longer building your company just with the idea that you're only doing this in Senegal. You're looking at Africa as the market. Maybe you are starting with Francophone Africa and then West Africa and then just generally Africa as your market. So you're looking at a really big market. But also you have a lot more companies now that are paying attention to what is being built and, and are interested in making acquisitions. We've had a number of headline acquisitions that have happened with Stripe acquiring um, Paystack and others. But then, you know, that leads to another debate that we'll probably won't start today because most of the companies that are in this space, especially in the digital space, I should say, that would make these acquisitions are primarily not from Africa. So are we going to end up with all of these African startups being non-African? So that's really the question. Like Jumia was, you know, considered to be an African company until it went public, but on the U.S. stock exchange. And so it's a really big question. I, I do believe that the, for me, where I see when I made the comments as well around acquisitions, that we should do more of that. I believe it has to do primarily as well in figuring out ways to close the gaps within the value chain. That even if we're not going to acquire horizontally to become just bigger, at least we should consider this strategy to acquire horizontally so that all these other areas that we are having to be pulled into because it's a must-have, as we've all agreed, that maybe rather than doing it, we find another company that can do it and we give them equity. But that also leads to, does everybody understand the value of equity? Because you need all of this equity to turn into cash, which means you need an acquisition at the end from somebody who has the cash. These points are spot on. I mean, I think a few years ago, there was a good amount of dialogue around this idea of seeing the same business in multiple markets and wondering when the M&A activity would start. And to your point, we're starting to see it, but you're very right to point out to whom does the value of that acquisition and, and the eventual exit accrue? Because the fundamental logic of, of developing ecosystems is that founders exit and they, they put money back into the ecosystem and the virtuous cycle repeats. But you're not necessarily assuming that you're getting a lot of capital drain in that process um, like you would brain drain. So it's a very, very important question to ask. 
we won't get an answer today, but I think it's one to definitely highlight. And, uh, you know, we're starting to also see, I guess, acquisitions within the continent. I think MFS Africa, if I'm not mistaken, has made uh, some uh, acquisitions along that line, and hopefully we'll see others. But in looking toward the future and starting to wrap up this conversation, I'm sure we've all heard all of the kind of dire warnings from players like Y Combinator and Sequoia Capital about the impending drop in valuations, the slowing of investment activity, and the need to tighten belts, stay alive, preserve runway, etc., in the face of the economic downturn. And then as the U.S. potentially heads into recession, African markets and beyond are starting to be confronted with increased food and fuel prices due to the Ukraine invasion. So with that in mind, Biram, I mean, you raised around fairly recently. How do you think startups in Francophone Africa will fare in this quote-unquote tough environment? It's a very good question. And it's one, it's funny because there's been a lot of chatting and articles being shared and data being shared, even with Maggi or within Husky. And, you know, we're, we're all looking at this and saying, well, what does it mean to us here as, as, as companies based in Africa in general, but in Frankfurt, Africa, trying to raise money? And, you know, ultimately what we do know is that this is not happening because there's no money in the banks. The investors actually are holding to the money, are holding on to the money. They're just very hesitant in funding companies at high valuations off of a PowerPoint presentation, like sometimes right. they do. So for me, it's just going back to a more realistic discussion, conversation, negotiation with the investors than it used to be. And I believe that that realistic conversation happens off of execution. But in Africa, we are in a position, and it's in Senegal, in more particular, I can speak to companies are not used to raising a lot of money. So you always very quickly need to think about how you're going to generate revenue. So you become a little bit more of a sustainable business that can be attractive to an investor because they look at you and they say, okay, this is not as risky as that PowerPoint presentation I had invested in because I actually have some <laughs> data to go by. I actually have, you know, customers that I can speak to to really understand if there is a need for this particular solution. So I think all of that puts us in a situation where we actually look at it as, hey, maybe the attention is going to be on us. Because <laughs> I think one of the articles, and Magic, correct me if I'm wrong, was stating, I don't remember the numbers, but it was stating that while investments have slowed down in a number of regions or countries, Africa, it has actually increased. A hundred percent. I mean, I couldn't agree more with what you stated. In fact, I've been kind of semi-circulating this was shared with me, so I didn't find it on my own, but semi-circulating this presentation from Sequoia Capital about uh, the impending uh, recession and implications for their portfolio companies. And in kind of like the early to middle of the presentation, I think it slides 14 to 17, they have headlines like, measurable growth and profitability are the way forward. And Hyper growth will no longer be uh, will no longer be rewarded, <laughs> and I'm looking at this thinking. So technically, most startups on the continent fit those criteria, and so what it should mean is there should be an increased interest in those mm -hmm. companies. Whether that will pan out or not, I don't know. But if you go based on on what Sequoia is saying, <laughs> it seems like there's a pretty good <laughs> a pretty good match, but. Maggie, what do you think? I mean, in having conversations with your portfolio companies at Haskei, what are you telling them about what it means to survive and thrive? And what do you make of all of this? So what do you make about the messages that are going around about how a startup should cope? 
<laughs> yeah, no, to me, it's always, you know, I always feel in any crisis, when, when there's a, an African crisis, it's an African crisis. When there's a Ebola crisis, it's a West African crisis. And when there's a global crisis, it also has to be ours, right? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> you know, our crisis can, should be considered global also when it matters. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, so, so to me, there's that aspect. And then I feel like every time there's a crisis, there's then some report analysis that says Africa was not as impacted. You know, I'm like, right, yeah, let's, let's learn. Each time it's the same story. Africa was not as impacted. So... You know, there are things that will touch on Africa. We're seeing the food crisis. It's a reality. But for other things, we're just following the the global headlines. And we locally, we're not too sure how to define that for the startups. You know, um, some of the, the, the ventures we're creating or, or supporting are very concerned about it and spending a lot of time on it. And then they, you know, the conversations we have, oh, yeah, but we need to get this and this and this done. So we need this and this and this money. So we, and we're trying to figure out how to channel that those funds in the same way we used to before even anyone was talking about the crisis. So I think we just have to be cautious uh, to realize where it matters to have the conversation and where that conversation is actually generating opportunity and where we, we're just trying too hard to be part of global headlines when we might actually be in a stage of opportunity. So that's my very, very basic thoughts on that. I think it's because maybe I've worked on the Ebola crisis and the re recently the, the COVID crisis where we were meant to disappear as a continent. That's mm. what the prediction was, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the kind of lens of realism you, you bring to this in the sense that if we're not going to share a crisis globally, and we've, we've seen evidence that that is not the case, then we should also be careful about which crises we kind of embrace as our own <laughs> and which are directly relevant or not. And surely there will be some impact because if investors are losing money, then they have less money to deploy. And I've sort of had some chats about the implications of that for people who are raising funds, for example. But it's very important to kind of be clear-eyed about mm -hmm. what is relevant and what is not. Yeah. So, you know, as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end. I've truly, truly enjoyed this conversation and, and learned a lot. But before I let you go, you are obliged uh, <laughs> to answer the series closing question and you have a choice. So either you can tell us uh, one stereotype about doing business in Francophone Africa that's true, but you wish it weren't, or one false stereotype that you would like to dispel. Biram, let's start with you. Hmm. One stereotype, and it is mostly Francophone Africa, one stereotype that I can think of that might be true uh, because it's something I've complained about myself and we're trying to do something about it is that we're not very good with marketing ourselves. Mm. Mm. We, we we don't do enough marketing about ourselves. We're closed within our our own selves, and that and you know we explain it sometimes based on um, some of the cultural sort of the way we were brought up. Um, sometimes to not talk too much about ourselves and not do this and everything. It's it's just sometimes there's a very cultural side to it. But also just in general, you'll see budgets and things like that where there's just no marketing or advertising attached to it. Coming from the U.S., it just feels completely off. 
And I think we could benefit from doing a lot more marketing and promoting what we do well. That's really interesting to hear. I've been told as much from the perspective of how founders behave and position themselves. I've been told that founders who are building in countries in Francophone Africa are less inclined as compared to founders in West Africa, and I will not name the country I have in my mind, they're less inclined mm-hmm. to <laughs> to share about what they're doing, to not to boast, but to market uh, what they're doing in, in a kind of a, in a very obvious way. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Maggie, which question would you like to tackle? <laughs> I think the, uh, the, the first one also. So a, a stereotype around uh, complexity. I do think it's true. <laughs> I, I tell people, you, you imagine you wake up and you spend a lot of time trying to figure out if it's le or la. You know, the articles, if you use a word. You know? <laughs> Each time you get on a call and if you, you all speak both English and French and somebody says, should we speak English and French? You'll most likely agree to speak English and you'll say, I haven't had coffee. I don't want to deal with the le and la of the, the English. So the complexity is true. However, however, you'd be surprised how many tools they are, how many even laws they are, how many ways people have found to navigate this complexity that makes it very, very much worth it to engage. And to speaking about the communication side of things, we don't talk enough about, you know, yes, it's complex. But there are many ways to manage through this complexity because we don't, you, you know, you'll figure out there's some public-private partnership law that actually allows you to address something or there's some person somewhere in, in Dakar that can do exactly what you need or find you some, some uh, talent or partner that you need. So, yeah, uh, complexity is true, but uh, the tools are here to navigate it. Yes, I think it's really important to underscore your point about the tools are here. There's a way in which Africa is complex, quote unquote, engenders the same type of laziness that underscores or underpins Africa as a country, if that makes sense. So Africa is complex is is maybe less offensive or less problematic uh, (laughs) know, the assumptions behind Africa as a country, but it sort of is... A blanket statement that is used to kind of acknowledge that something is less than straightforward, but it doesn't sort of force you to disentangle and to confront what is difficult and what is not and what is solvable and what is not. And inevitably, if you're going to engage meaningfully, you're going to have to dive beneath the surface of quote unquote complexity. But that uh, is a problem for another day. And I want to thank you, Biram and, and Maji, for joining me for Dans les Coulisses, where we're trying to look behind the curtain of what's happening in venture and francophone markets. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with and learning from you. I'd like to thank those of you who've been tuning in. Stay well and take care. <laughs>